There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bye, 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 baby. I am bye, baby. I am bye, baby. Welcome to Brown Baby, a podcast about parenting and finding joy in bleak times. I'm your host, Nick S. Shukla. I'm the author of the newly released memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home. Guess what? It's in the shops right now. You can go and buy it. Please do support it. It's a memoir about raising kids and grieving for a parent and trying to muddle my way through difficult questions like how to talk to my kid about skin colour. I won't big it up. I'll let Deborah Francis White, host of The Guilty Feminist, do that for me. She said, Brown Baby is fizzing with humanity, life and light. Nikesh Shukla, that's me, has written page after page of golden prose that made me laugh out loud and weep real tears. Love, family, grief, race and gender are all nurtured carefully with intention and hope in this urgently relevant 21st century memoir. Thanks, Deborah. So in this podcast each week, I interview a different person about raising kids. I speak to actors, comedians, writers, journalists about raising kids, the reality of parenting and finding joy in bleak times. Bleak times, not bleak times. Bleak times. This week, my guest is the award-winning writer Kit Duval. She is the author of two novels, My Name is Leon and The Trick to Time, the short story collection supporting cast and editor of the anthology Common People. She is an absolute hero. I'm a huge fan of her work. In this episode, we talk about being mixed race, raising mixed race kids, adopting children, writing late at night and how she is changing the publishing industry. Links to her books and mine are in the show notes. Please enjoy the interview. But first, a quick story. This week, my kid lost her first tooth. (laughs) Nothing remarkable, except it was the talk of the town. There she was eating an apple one minute, the next she was recoiling in pain. And then she discovered, to her absolute delight, she had a wobbly tooth. Suddenly the world became dwarfed by this tooth. Before long she had shared the wobbly tooth news with our relatives. She had established a network of other kids in her class with wobbly teeth. She speculated about the motivations of the tooth fairy and she wobbled it idly while watching television. What was remarkable about the whole thing? was I just gave in to her world and let myself be spirited away by the whole thing. It was enthralling to obsess about something other than work and the news for a bit and it gave me the necessary motivation to be a great tooth fairy. Except when it came to removing the tooth when the time came it was so tiny it took me seven minutes to locate it under her pillow and she stirred three times. She didn't realise it was me but the next day she noted that her worry doll had changed position under her pillow wondering whether it had played with the tooth fairy and I was along for the ride. It was amazing. I loved caring about something else. The only thing is the fuck do I do with this tooth? 
It's tiny, easily losable, and it kind of looks creepy in my drawer. I mean, I could collect them all into a bracelet. Oh, I don't know. That's kind of weird. Anyway, now time for my interview with Kit Duval. Welcome to the podcast, Kit Duval. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And it's great to be here. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. So, Kit, you are a writer who writes a, a lot about family, you know, sort of found family and inherited families and, and adopted families and, and all the rest of it. And that's some, this is a, a, something that has come up in your work time and again. And I, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about where that's come from, or why, why you think that these themes seem to crop up in your work quite a lot. Um, I think mainly because I, uh, I grew up in the 60s. So I was born in 1960. My sister was born in 58. And then I've got three other siblings born within a very, very small, a very, very short time. And we were mixed race. And it's impossible for a lot of people to uh, think about how weird that was in the 60s. So now it's just so normal. But when I was growing up, there were, I mean, I can honestly say there were like two mixed race families in Birmingham because I knew who they were. Do you know what I mean? They were, they were like the Mattersons the virtues you know you knew the other mixed race families because we all got the same weird looks so it's really unusual for a white woman to be to be with a black man and then on top of that we were jehovah's witnesses and that made us again very different from the mainstream and also the white in our family was irish wasn't english so that made it difficult again so there were so many ways that we had to be a tribe there was no one that we could say we're like that family because there was no family that we were like. So consequently, my brothers and sisters, we just became very important to one another. That's not to say we got on all the time because we didn't and we still don't. But we are the touchstone for normality. It's where I go to if I want to, you know, if I want to feel normal and right and human and that I matter it's in reference to those people. They, you know, they help me find my way in the universe. So I've just written this book uh, called Brown Baby, which is this podcast is kind of about. And and in that, I I, I talk about having mixed race kids, and uh, and that's kind of part of the reason why I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to you because um because I know you've got um lots to say on this, and and I think one of the things that I I really wrestle with as as a brown father who has um two mixed race kids is there is a degree to which they will always either be racialized as brown or as mixed race, and very rarely if 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 at all white. And I'm sort of conscious as as I raise them that I don't want to kind of demean or not demean or belittle or, or sort of make unimportant the fact that they are half white but at the same time because white is a default to an extent just really making making something of of the brown side of them is something that's really really important to me and and it's, it's really interesting that what you said about how you kind of didn't have um this this was sort of quite atypical for, for that for that time in Birmingham so so what was it like for you growing up with with, with that sense of identity so well the school we went to obviously was completely white there was a I think there was another black family uh, maybe two towards the end of my junior school in my senior school there was me my sister and another black girl and uh, every, you know every, everyone was white the whole thing and, and as I say we were our white side was Irish and you know in in the 70s when the IRA were on their bombing campaign that's not a popular thing to be Irish it might be all fiddly d now and Guinness and stagnites in Dublin 
But at the time, you know, the Irish were the bad guys. They were the terrorists. They were the what people think of as Muslims today when they categorise terrorists and think they're Muslim and they're bad. That's what Irish was. It was a word, a label that was synonymous with being a terrorist and that's or stupid. And they usually went hand in hand, you know, the Irish jokes. So that was the Irish side of us. And then the, the black side of us was, you know, my dad, who was West Indian in the, in the West Indian community, very, very proud black man. And growing up with, and also has to say, both of my parents were pretty dysfunctional. So we, we grew up, as, as I say, in, in this tribe, and we completely and utterly felt a, a, a one thing. I never thought I was half yeah, half cast was the phrase in the day, back in the day. I never felt half of anything. I felt double. You know, it, it was a very, I mean, that's a tribute to my mother who told us from day one how fantastic it was to be both. Oh my God, you're so fantastic. You're so beautiful. You're so clever. You're so fantastic. Everyone wants to be brown and you're brown already. So she loaded all this stuff onto us that we bought wholesale. So we always thought, wow, it's great to be us. Down really to, to, to my mother's upbringing, but also because we felt both, we felt three things. We felt Irish completely. We felt black completely. We also felt British. You know, we did, you know, brought up in Birmingham in, in you know, on the outskirts of a very, very middle-class area. And so we were just like, yeah, man, we can move. We can flex. We can go there. We can go there. I know how to talk that. I know how to eat that. I know where to sit for this. I know how to speak to that, to black Nana, as we called her. And I know how to speak to white Nana. I can do all those things. So for me, I never felt fractured. I never felt less than. I felt I had this sort of chameleon-like ability to know these communities from the inside, from the soft underbelly of these communities. And I felt very, I mean, I didn't know that when I was growing up. Of course, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. It's only when I get older and people, my, my white grandmother said to my mother when she was having children for a black man, they'll, ne you know, they're ne neither fish nor fowl. They won't know where they stand in the world. And I'd, I'd be like, what is she talking about? You know, I never internalised that bullshit. But I do know that that isn't the same for a lot of people growing up who struggle to feel whole, holy in one community or the other. And I think we were very, very lucky that we had such a different experience of, of thinking we are basically the dog's bollocks. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think you hear so many stories of um, people from mixed race backgrounds feeling like they have to choose or make a choice. And I guess what you're describing is, I guess, I guess this idea of code switching, which, you know, we, we all do to, to varying degrees in this country, whether it be along class lines or race lines or, you know, somewhere in between those two things. But this ability for you to just be your, your true self, with, no matter what environment you were in, but be able to speak or switch into that code if that, if that makes sense I don't know. no I complete I, I think that's very true and I don't think you realize what a skill it is and how it prepares you for the code switching you're going to do for the rest of your life because we all do if you've got any sort of emotional intelligence at all you'll know that you have to do how to behave in certain circumstances and I certainly learned that you know from the cradle in many ways and it's a great skill to have at the same time you you know you don't want to be a hypocrite and you don't want that chameleon like quality to to mess you up you know to to make you look duplicitous or like you're not really black 
because there are, you know, I can remember being 14 and first, you know, discovering boys and going out with boys and, you know, getting a lot of hatred sometimes from certain black areas, you know, like, oh, she thinks she's nice. She's too red. She's a red skinned bitch. And I was, I was amazed that that would ever come from the black community. Obviously, you expect it from certain areas of the white community. And for me, certainly now, right at the other end of my life, I feel the the problem that people have if you can call it a problem with being mixed race is their problem you know i'm so wholly me and so fine uh you know and i feel like all these different uh, ways that i am in different communities and there's no doubt that i am are just like you know facets of a diamond you know shines this way that one's a bit dull turn it that way that one's shiny the other side's dull i, I just think it's it's a great thing but I don't think it's an automatic thing either. I was lucky enough to grow up in Birmingham, super, you know, liberal, middle-class area, very, very accepting of difference. Had I been brought up, you know, in an extremely white area where my blackness may not have been such a, uh, you know, so accepted, I'm sure I'd feel very different. Yeah, there's that Zora Neale Hurston quote, uh, I, I feel most coloured when thrown against a sharp white background has that that way that you were you were raised has that kind of given you any insight into you know ways that we can think about raising mixed race children so that they they don't feel a, a lot of this pressure that you know to, to belong to one or the other and and but at the same time have an, another identity that is very equal but still separate in a way um i think it, it's so great for mixed race children now in that there are so many role models there were no mixed race role models when i was growing up none there were black role models obviously and i can remember my dad would you know if there was a black person on the telly that wasn't uh trevor mcdonald he go gone down and it would rush into the telly room and it'd be like black person on the telly oh my god how great is that you know it's so amazing but there were never there's never a mixed race there might be a light-skinned black person it wasn't mixed race it was very different sorry to interrupt but it's so funny to think that even in terms of you know south asians the mix two of the most famous people in the 80s when i was growing up were mixed race but it wasn't really talked about sir ben kingsley and freddie mercury and it's like they made a choice to pass as white which i think is really interesting well that's a whole other thing that you know the notion of passing which uh, was really really interestingly uh, written about by philip roth when he wrote human stain fascinating book about this um you know this mixed uh, black guy in fact black guy not even mixed race who could pass as white and, and how he lived his life and i recommend anyone that, that's interested in that subject read the book it's great i've got two children um they're both mixed race they're both adopted they're both different mixed race heritage to me completely different obviously they're completely unrelated to me but funnily enough we did for, for my son's 18th, we did the DNA test and we all did it. So, you know, we knew we were completely unrelated, but we just thought, let's do it anyway. And it turns out the three of us, our blackness, because we're all black in a different way, all comes from Benin in, um, in Africa. So we've decided we are related after all, which is fantastic and such a nice thing to find out. But my son in particular, um, when uh, I adopted him, he was a little boy and he's peroxide white hair bright blue eyes and white skin and he's mixed race he's got he's got black um heritage and um i cannot tell you how many times 
I was assumed to be his nanny numerous, numerous times. I was his nanny and or I was his childminder. Once I had the police come to the door because it had been reported and they'd taken down my car registration number that there was a black person um, abusing a white child in a car because I was probably telling him off. I hadn't hit him. But I, and that was reported to the police as being cause for concern because you've got this black ogre and this little white precious baby Jesus. And, you know, it, the, the power dynamics was disturbing some of the neighbours. Anyway, um, so the, the notion of passing is really interesting because he can pass completely. And, and so can my daughter, completely pass as, as black. And when he was growing up, I used to say, uh, you, know, you know, you're black, don't you? So I'm not black, mum, I'm not black. I said, you're black in your heart. You know, because I wanted him to understand his blackness, which he, he struggled with, obviously. I say, you're mixed race like me. Your skin's come out white, but you've got a black, you've got blackness in your heart. You've got blackness in your soul. And we have great discussions about it even now. And he can choose and he will be able to choose for the rest of his life, whether or not to identify with black people. You know, and so will my daughter, who's also Native American. And she will be able to decide, you know, that's that's something I've never had. I, I don't know what that must be like to decide to identify with an oppressed people or not. You know, obviously, Luke's extremely proud of being of his black heritage but wow that is a thing you know you've got to be sorted out and certain and politically astute and proud and knowledgeable and all those things to decide to identify as black in sometimes in difficult circumstances and i'm you know really proud of my children that they do and they can but it's it's something i'll never know i think i think that might might be a challenge especially for children yeah god that's that's really fascinating that this sort of idea that you can either choose you can either choose to um identify with what is considered in the west to be the default or to be other yeah and to have an easier ride you know i don't say i'm black and i will have an easier ride i mean that's white privilege in action or i can declare who i am you know what my heritage is identify as black or or mixed race or whatever and perhaps have a different experience whatever that experience is talking about um growing up in birmingham in the the 60s part of two very very marginalized communities and when you think back to that time and you think about now what do you think culturally has has sort of changed or or hasn't changed for those communities i would have to say it's better it's not there not by a million miles but it's better in that there are role models there are black men and women who have achieved and who are present in our lives on television in sport in politics in every in business in every walk of life there are black men and women there are mixed race men and women out there that we can look at and say, okay, I can, I can do that. Someone's gone before me. Excuse me about the pinging. In, in that respect, it's better that there are role models. It is now, I mean, I would say officially in young circles called to be black. It was not called to be black when I was young at all. There was Michael Jackson. That was it. So it, I think now it is called to be black. It's cool to know the language. Black music, black popular culture is basically mimicked by everybody you know these days for young people so in many ways it's better i think in the way that it's worse is hey ho here we are still talking about it why do we have to talk about it why statues still be pulled down why are black people why is there a black lives matter thing even at all considered why haven't we solved it and i'm tired you know i'm tired of talking about race like lots and lots of people are tired of talking about it 
this initiative, that initiative that's, yeah, we're going to do it this time. In those ways, it's worse because we've tried and failed. Well, we haven't tried and failed, but things have been tried and things have failed. So in that way, I think there's so much work to be done. However, it is, I can see from my children who are 25 and 20, they live in a different world, certainly as regards race. You know, for a start, there's legislation. The first race relations legislation in this country came out in 1973. Um, Pre-1973, you know, my mother was spat at many times for having black children. My parents couldn't buy a house because my father was black. That's all changed. There's legislation now to protect certain behaviours and certain systems. Great that we've got the legislation. What a shame that we have to have the legislation still and that we haven't got to this place of true equality and true acceptance. We still have a massive um, gap in, in the payment for ethnic minorities. There's still not enough people from ethnic minority backgrounds in real positions of power, real positions of power, not perceived positions of power. We still have massive inequalities in every single uh, measurement, like housing, life chances, health, as we know from COVID. So, you know, there's still massive inequalities, but I would rather my children grew up in this world of race equality than in my world of race equality, definitely. When I did The Good Immigrant in 2016, 2017, I just found myself kind of at the forefront of a lot of these conversations, almost by accident, even though I just wanted to write fiction. And I was talking to my uncle. So my uncle came over to the UK in the 60s and in 1968, he tried to buy a house and um, they refused to sell, sell it to him uh, because there was a company policy not to sell to coloured people. The Race Relations Act had just come in. And so my uncle took them to court and he was, he was the first person to ever bring a case of racial discrimination discrimination under the 1968 Race Relations Act and at, and because it was a test case it was actually um, dismissed by the judge but in dismissing the case the judge had said that had he tried it he would have uh, found in favour of my uncle because it fa found in favour of my uncle because discrimination had taken place and the company was so shamed by this that they actually changed their policy which was just this brilliant encapsulation that like one person can make a difference if if the difference that they want to make is achievable and manageable and I remember talking to my uncle about this around the time of the good immigrant because he you know he was immensely proud of like the work that I was doing and one of the things that he he said was after Brexit he started to see that there were conversations still happening that he had fought for 50 years ago because he like it was such a huge thing for him to bring this thing to court he went against everyone to do this thing like my family was saying don't do this his friends and all the rest of it and he said 50 years later and we're still having the same conversations and he said you know they keep telling telling us that the laws have made us more equal um, and yes there are laws in place that that make us more equal but what what work has been done in this country for people's hearts and minds and I thought that was a really interesting concept the thing that I realized in that moment was that you and me Kit our, our work as writers who who dabble in activism well not dabble but writers who do activism work we are doing that work to change people's hearts and minds and so I, I suddenly in that moment realized my responsibility as a writer it was it was really really powerful and Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One of the things I just completely admire about you is, as a writer, you know, you you're putting out amazing work but at the same time you're setting up scholarships and you're you're widening the conversation around diversity to to ensure that we're also talking about class and you know the the project that you did with um with the common people project like what you did for unpublished working class writers was like leagues beyond what i'd managed to do with the good immigrant and i just think that that I, i see that in you like there's just something within you that wants to do that work and wants to change those hearts and minds thanks for saying that but i do feel very much as you said dabbling in activism and I feel like you know I'm the reluctant activist because I never I never wanted to do this you know I never wanted to be anyone's spokesman I never wanted to be the you know oh she's got something to say I I just wanted to like you just want to write my books and, and you know if I can just write my books and just do that that's fine um I do also feel I feel and I don't want to put this on other people because I don't think it's everyone's responsibility to speak out some you know if you've got a I've got a big mouth and if you've got a big mouth it's quite easy to speak out I feel I've got something to say and I'm quite happy to say it and take the knocks um not everyone feels like that and I think we can't load that responsibility onto everybody I feel if I can I I should I should that's my journey and some people can't or don't want to I just want to have a quiet life. And you don't know what people live with and what trauma they have and what their views are. So I don't put it on everybody. But I do feel, for me, a lot to do with my children, you know, my, the, the, the journey my children have had, which hasn't been an easy journey through life, and the journey that they will have. I feel not duty-bound, because I do loathe that word, but I feel a responsibility to point out things that are wrong, especially where equality is concerned and and bringing people to the point where they feel they've got a fair crack of the whip and if they don't want to take avail themselves of that opportunity that's fine but at least have the opportunity there you might not want to do anything with it but have the freedom to express yourself um and and certainly as regards you know a fairer society for my children and for their children it's so important to me that they don't suffer some of the same shit i had massively important so I'm, you know, I probably went slightly too far when they were at school because if they had any shit whatsoever, I was up there, you know, I was just like, you know, not having it at all. Anything the teachers said that was remotely uh, exclusionary against children in care or, or you know, um, black children or whatever it was that I was, you know, they, they'd been discriminated against, I would be there. Uh, to the point where the children say, don't go to school, mom. I'm just going to tell you something that happened at school, but I don't want you to do anything about it because I'd be too interventionist. Um, so I think there's, 
you know, for, for those of us that see things that are wrong and, and we have a desire to change the world or we want to see a different world, I think it is true that you have to be the change that you want to see. You know, if, if you see something and it's within your ability and your personality to do something about it, then, then try and change the world so that, you know, my children don't have the same bollocks that I had at school. And they also are being brought into a world that's equal, equal in so many ways. You know, I say to, I remember my saying to my daughter when she was about 15, she had this really close best friend. And I said, you know, are you gay, Beth? Are you, are you lesbian? And she said, no. I said, you know, you can be, you know, and I start on this flipping terrain where I'm more or less telling her she is. And she's going, mom, I'm not gay, okay? And I say, well, you can be, and you might be, and don't close the door on it. Because you could like girls this week and boys next week, or you might like, and I'm going over the top. And she said to me recently, she said, God, mum, you used to really annoy me trying to make me gay. And I wasn't trying to make a gay. I was trying to go the other way to the world I'd had where that would have ha that would have been a cause of shame. That would have been a cause of embarrassment. I wanted her to have the world in front of her and to be able to express herself in whatever way she wanted. Obviously. I was over the top about it and got it wrong. But, you know, it came from me wanting her to have this expansive, anything goes, wonderful opportunity to be herself. And I still feel, you know, very much feel like that. I do, I do sometimes wonder if um, sometimes as parents, we tend to go for the opposite of the, the, the things we perceive to not be great about how we were raised. And so if you were surrounded by closed doors, you'll keep the doors as open as possible. And But sometimes that means that you know, you forget that kids do need parameters and boundaries to to operate within. Yes, you do. You do, definitely. And I think, um, you know, I was certainly uh, being brought up in an extremely fundamentalist Christian religion that was very damaging. I, I definitely went over the top in saying to my children, you know, you can do what you want. You don't have to listen to authority. If a teacher t does that, tell them to piss off. You know, I was way wrong. I was wrong. I remember being in town with my son once and there was a man walked past us and he had green hair and no shoes on and my kids are going oh look at that man with green hair I was going so what so what he looks fantastic do you know what he's doing he's expressing myself and I give them this very long over the top speech because the guy did look weird let's face it so my children are just they're not laughing you know in any nasty way but they've never seen anything like it and I was really just instead of going yes doesn't he look funny but isn't it great? I just get onto my soapbox and I'm lay, you know, laying into the kids saying, never laugh at people that are different. <laughs> That's my crap. Do you know what I mean? That's just as bad, that kind of parenting, as the person that, you know, as a, my mother who would have thought that was the worst thing in the world. So I think, you know, I mean, I'm pretty immature as parents go. So um, I'm still working on being a grown-up with my children. One of the things that's so great about your career is you've, you've been writing for years and years and years, but three or four years ago, you were able to kind of make a co complete career tran transition and, and become a full-time writer. And and, and I, I wonder if that's something that you you would have felt like you could have done when you were I didn't want to be a writer. I didn't think about being a writer until I was in my early 40s. I adopted like Luke in 19... Or whether they even entered... And he was quite ill, and so I gave up work and I had to be at home. Bored out of my skull it has to be said I started work when I was 17 16 I think and I had worked all that time until I was found myself sort of 44 thinking oh my god I cannot paint the kitchen again you know I've got to find something else to do with my life so I started writing and found it incredibly hard but I absolutely fell in love with it 
And it, it really was a sort of response to having time and space to think. I think maybe had I had time and space earlier on, I would have started, but I didn't have any time. I was bringing up children, I was running a house, I was working. And all of a sudden I found myself, didn't have to work, couldn't work, had these long days, sometimes long nights. And that's when I started to write. And I think for a lot of working class people, uh, we do do come to writing later in life. You you might have paid off some of the bills. You might have got yourself a fridge freezer and a car and you don't need to work so hard to get them or whatever. And also there's that great sense of time running out. If not now, when? So uh, when I started writing, it was really it was a revelation to me that I could want something so badly. Before this, I had worked to earn money. You know, that... that I just, you know, that was my job. Five o'clock, pen drop, I'm gone. And all of a sudden, here was I working for no money, writing, trying to get better, working all these hours at this craft that I, I you know, completely got to me. And I discovered for the first time in my life what ambition was. I'd never understood it before. I was really ambitious. You know, I wanted to get published. I wanted to work out how to get to be a better writer and how to do all these things. So in, in many ways, it was great that it didn't come to me earlier. I don't think I'd have been as, as good. I don't think I'd have been compassionate at all. I was too angry. That that ambition thing, I think, is is fascinating because it's something that writers are very loath to admit that they feel and 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 I've def I definitely would never show away from admitting that I, I'm I'm ambitious. But given that the publishing industry is such such an opaque industry, it's so it it really doesn't know how to do PR on itself. How did how did you go about discovering how it works? I, I had no idea. I can remember when um you know when I didn't know you needed an agent. No one told. I never heard of an agent. I thought you wrote your book. You sent it to Penguin because they're the only people I knew. They put a wrapper on it and six weeks later, it's on the three for two thing in Waterstones. That's how it works, surely. <laughs> I, I had no idea. And I, I was 50 at this time. I'm 50 when that's what I think about the publishing industry. I had no idea. Um, and so when I, I got an agent um, and, she, you know, my book went to auction and it was a big deal and... They said, oh, you know, yeah, we'll do some editing. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean editing? I've written the book. I didn't know you had an editor. Didn't know you had a proofreader. I just didn't know. You know, it took me, when I, when I was just got published, um, maybe three months after I got published, um, I got an interview with the, I was asked to do an interview with the a Guardian. And uh, I was talking to this journalist and just answering these questions. And I said, you know, and where are all the working class writers? And I really meant, I know it seems like it's a condemnatory question. I was being really serious. Where are they all? Introduce me to them. I was thinking they must be there somewhere, but where are they? And from that point onwards, I started to look at the industry in a much more interrogative way where, oh, where's that? And how does that happen? And you know, it was a very, very slow route into activism and slow route into knowing how the industry is set up and this concentration of the industry in London and lots of exclusionary systems and practices. You know, it was, it was like a year-long masterclass in how the publishing industry works. It was no slow realisation. Uh, and I'm massively new into publishing. I'm massively new into this. You know, my book got published four years ago 
four years ago. I, there's still lots I don't know. There are people that have been working in publishing for 20 or 30 years that know it inside out. I am completely still the new girl in this industry. But I, but I think that idea of being new is important because it forces the industry to assess how approachable and accessible it is, which is something that you have shown time and time again. It can be more more accessible if we just think about accessibility yes absolutely and you know sometimes there are tweaks that you can do lots of tweaks that you can do and one of the things you know if there's any good thing about covid it's that all of a sudden people have realized you can do a lot of these meetings you know by zoom virtually because um you would have a situation you still have a situation where an agent will speak you know let's say you've sent off your manuscript you live in uh, Doncaster, you've sent your manuscript off to London and the agent will say, yeah, come and see me on Thursday at four o'clock. And you're like, wow, really? So that's, what, £160 on the train, get across London, some childcare, sandwich, coffee, a lot of money. But that sentence, come and see me on Thursday, is a really great invitation. No one's going to turn it down. But actually, let's unpick what that means for someone. And if anything good's come out of COVID, it's the fact that people now would say, let's Zoom so I can talk to you about that. Because that was not on the table before. You would never have said, I can't come and see you on Thursday because I can't afford 200 quid. You'd have just found the 200 quid and you'd have gone because this is your big opportunity. Now I think the industry is coming alive to the fact that we can do some of these things, these important things, important meetings, virtually which saves time and makes things slightly more equal it's not to say there's not digital poverty but i'm not going to get into that one um so i think i think you know the industry that, that's just a, a tiny tweak that's a tiny tiny tweak that the industry can make that equals things out and then there are huge systemic things that need to change yeah god he used, he used to bore my piss when you know I'd have, you know, because I also don't don't live in London. When I'd have to drop a day's work in order to come in for a thirty-minute meeting, that could have been done over the phone. That, oh, I mean, I'm talking specifically about working in TV, where you go in and pitch a bunch of ideas, and and it's the vibes in the room that might lead to something three years from now. Maybe I don't know. I remember you telling me over a cup of tea once we were talking about writing and balancing writing with kids because I, I had a new baby at the time and you told me that you were a night owl and that you can't write before like 10 o'clock at night is that still the case and is that something that kind of came out of being a parent and and working no no just came out of being an, a night person you know I'm I'm just shit up until two o'clock in the afternoon on anything doesn't matter what it is particularly writing i find i can edit in the day can find you know can find i can do editing all day long but the creative work when i can access whatever it is you access as a writer to do your best work i can only do when the world's gone quiet i have to have a sort of room like someone's got the big lever and they've pulled it down and everything's just gone from 11 to 2 then i can sort of tune in i feel like there's it's less noise in my head and there's just less noise in the world it's like it's like i can access it on the quiet because you're not looking there you're, you're trying to sleep i don't know i mean that's a really shit way of explaining it but i really cannot write i mean it wouldn't be 10 the earliest i suppose would be uh, nine eight or nine and then i might work till four in the morning something like that yeah i i i, I can't do it anymore i guess my biggest fear as a parent at the moment is 
being someone who is i guess for all intents and purposes part of the culture war and you know very politically minded and you know obsessed with the news and worrying about the news i want to raise my kids in a world where they are they are prepared and realistic about what the world looks like but i'm still instilling them with a sense of boundlessness and joy and i know that they are a lot younger than than your kids are but how how do you retain a sense of joy and wonder with your kids when things seem as bleak and as dark as they are or as uncertain as they are um the only thing i think in that this is a fallback to my mother you know one of the I wouldn't say the few things she got right, but she certainly got this right. She told us we were wonderful. So I, I'm not really one for joy and boundless energy and isn't nature great? It's just not me. I'm not going to do that. What I would do, and I think, oh, well, I know what I did for my children. is like, you are so great. You're so great. You know, you've done that so great. You're not, you know, the, sometimes my daughter particularly had a hard time at school and she'd come home and she'd say, oh, was that happened? I'd go, who was it? And she'd say, oh, you know, Linda Jones, I go, Linda Jones with the bad hair, you know, and we'd be just laughing about Linda Jones. And, you know, <laughs> apart from taking it seriously, it was also, you are so great. You know, that's just what I gave them and they believe it. It's not belief. No, they know it. They know they're great. And of course, you know, there's loads of limitations on what they can do. They have had a difficult start in life. They will continue to be challenged throughout their life. But inside at your core, at the place that is the most precious and the most uh, important, you are great. I am great. And that's what my children would say and know, I hope. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kit Dewal. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It goes without saying that I'd love it if you subscribed to this podcast and left a great review and told all your social medias about us and supported the book. Yes, please, please buy the book anywhere you want. I'm not going to judge where you buy your books. That's not for me to judge. I don't know you. You don't know me. Um, hard sell, etc., etc. Brown Baby, available in all good bookshops and some bad bookshops and some mediocre bookshops. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you next week. Thank you to Acast for supporting the podcast and to my publishers, Bluebird, and to Kit, who took time out from a ridiculous deadline to speak to me, and to you for listening. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am, I am. Silly brown baby. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.